Hey, everybody. So this is week nine of Substance, and we're talking about embracing discipline. And we're going to try to get the slides up there eventually. And um, these are kind of two sides of the same endeavor, right? Escaping diversion is part of the dispursuit of the world and worldliness. And embracing discipline is part of the pursuit of God. And it's part of um, having just one master. In fact, I, um, I was having a sermon discussion this week with a couple other staff, and Vince kind of blurted out, Pastor Vince, our children's pastor, kind of blurted out in the middle of us talking with each other. He said, because it's not about trying harder. It's about having one master. You can kind of hear Vince saying that, right? He's really good at caps and calculating things. And that was, it's great. I was like, that's really great. Because it's not about, it really isn't about trying harder. It's about having one master. Because if you try to embrace discipline, or if you try really hard to escape diversion, and you have two masters, you will find it impossible. You'll never have enough strength to do it. And if you only have one master, there isn't anything else feasible than pursuing that one master and running away from the one who would entrap you and ensnare you away from him. So even though we're going to talk about something that takes all of our exertion, in a way, it's still not about trying harder. It's about having one master. Right? Jesus said that the key was no one can serve two masters. You'll hate one and love the other. You'll be, devote yourself to one and you'll despise or not obey or want to be around the other one. Right? And so what that means is this, is that to the extent to which we embrace worldliness instead of the one master, Jesus, what what will happen is worldliness will be our master. The effect of that will mean diversion will be our practice. And what that will produce in us is passivity in our character. So worldliness is our master, makes diversion our normal practice, what we do. And remember, what we imitate, we become. And as we allow ourselves to be passively diverted, we will become passive ourselves. Worldliness diversion to passivity. And passivity is one of our really big problems. When what Jesus is saying we should do is that we should seek God, which is a very active thing, and that we should seek really big things about God, like his kingdom, that is everything he's doing in the universe, and his righteousness, everything that is great about him, which is voluminous, right? And so in order to do that, we've talked about these four marks of our pursuit, which is self-sacrificial love, to be people of self-sacrificial love, people who are growing in the mind of Christ, who are strengthened by virtuous freedom, and who are keeping in step with the Spirit. But like so many things in life, there are a lot of things that you pursue kind of by pursuing them and kind of by pursuing something else. So for example, if you are pursuing smaller clothes, you pursue smaller clothes partly by pursuing a different grocery list right? And by pursuing a different schedule, one that includes workouts, for example, right? If you're pursuing, pursuing being really great at a musical instrument, right? You've got to pursue a schedule in which you practice said instrument, you get some money to pay for lessons on that instrument. Like just in almost everything that we pursue, we have to pursue other things before we pursue in order to achieve the pursuit of those other things. And so if you really want to pursue those four things, which is an encapsulation of what spiritual substance looks like in the Bible, 
there are some, in some ways, more fundamental, earthly, practical things you have to pursue if you're going to be successful in pursuing those four things, which are these. Embracing the ordinary, that is, that we are creatures of roles and responsibilities and repetitions that have to live in a certain rhythm. And if we recognize that and learn to live in it, we can live fully human and happy in the real life that actually is here, as opposed to rebelling against it and being angry about it. We have to escape diversion, which is the real work of fighting worldliness. We need to embrace discipline, which is the forging of substance in our character, right? You can't have virtuous freedom without virtue. And then we'll talk next week about belonging to the formational community and how that helps with all this stuff, right? So it's important to recognize that we are a people who have been, have kind of brainwashed ourselves and addicted ourselves to not taking responsibility for how weak and wicked we are, right? We, we, we tend to be really, really good at letting ourselves off the hook for things. And that is a form of passivity. And because we don't want to do all the work and like face all the things that need to change or be constructed and forged in us, we'd rather just stay where we are. We'd rather just be passive because that's what we could, we tend to live in worldliness and diversion, which leads to passivity. And so we tend to blow off our, both our wickedness and our weakness. And this is not new, right? This goes back to Shakespeare. It actually probably goes back much further than that. There's this great, um, there's this great verse in King Lear where one of the men says, I know, yeah. <clears throat> An admirable evasion of whoremaster man to lay blame for his goatish disposition to the charge of a star right? He's saying, you're right, human beings are whoremasters about themselves, right? We're pimps. We just, we love to, to farm out our corruption. See what he's saying? And so I, I'm, I'm, I'm farming out my corruption of my goatish disposition, like we'll just eat anything, right? We'll just chew the label off of life. It's just disgusting what we will imbibe into ourselves and how just unhappy we are. It's like, and everything, right? Even in the middle of Taylor Swift songs on YouTube, right? <laughs> You've seen this? Okay, anyway. <clears throat> and, the, and what we will charge it up to is somebody else, and if somebody else isn't available, we will push it up to the universe. So like right now, what do what young people, how, what do young people like to blame their problems on? Right? Well, if they're white and they can't blame it on society and all the stuff that came before them, they're parents, right? They're parents. Everything that's wrong with us is our parents' fault. Don't you know this? What's wrong with you is your parents' fault. They were horrible. My, if you watch the my parents were mean, right? But if you can't make it stick with your parents, right, then it's like the universe. And so like in Shakespeare's time, it was like astrology because like I was born after the second moon of Jupiter. Like I'm a serial adulterer and like I don't know what to tell you, right? And like in modern times, it's like, you know, it's like brain scans. Like we, we have these brains that do stuff and like, you know, when I get angry, this part of my brain just lights up and I can't control it. Yeah, except the whole front half of your brain is designed to control it. Right? If, but the front part has to be disciplined. It has to be forged so that it controls all the rest of it. It's actually the weakness. And guess what? The brain, that part of the brain doesn't control you. You have to forge it so it controls the rest of it so that you aren't a rage machine and an adultery machine and a greed machine and an eating machine and a gossiping machine and a blah, blah, blah machine. We want to pass off not just our wickedness, 
but our, but our weakness on some kind of determinism because we are whoremasters who want to lay the blame for our goatish disposition on a star. But nature, in addition to the Bible, is always testifying against us. For example, if you look at two lions, and they grow up to be adult male lions, right? They will be essentially interchangeable. They will like female lions, they will kill gazelles, they will enjoy the taste of meat, they will like lying around and expecting the female lions to go hunt for them, and they will fight stuff and they will have sharp teeth. They will be virtually identical, okay? If you take two men who are humans, one of whom trains for years to be a Navy SEAL, the other trains for years to be a top computer programmer, they will be extraordinarily different people. Right? If I ask you, which one will more quickly hack a website? We know the answer. If I ask you, which one will, will survive a knife fight with the other? We probably know the answer. Right? Like, they're very different because human beings have the capacity to get better at things with practice and training and development. Whereas most other creatures on planet Earth are not. Like, we're really excited when, like, a parrot can ride a trice, like a, like a little unicycle thingy. Like, that's weighted on the bottom so it can't even flip over, like, at the fair, right? My, my three-year-old can do that, right? But human beings can create concert piano music, and they can build skyscrapers, and they can do incredible things because human beings can be forged. How many of you are responsible for somebody under age 15 or younger? All right. How many of you have introduced them to something that is actually a human skill, and they've done it for 20 minutes or less and then declared definitively, I'm not good at this? Right? The same number of hands, right? Because, like, this is the culture we live in. People are like, you're either immediately great at things or you're not. Right? And only the most complicated things do, like, kids realize that's dumb. Like, so, like, if you—if a kid starts to play piano and they're terrible at it, they, like, realize, oh, maybe you're supposed to know how to do this, right? But you can introduce them to, like, a sport. And they're like, well, I can't hit the ball right yet, and I, I must be bad at this. Because we don't want to recognize that the reason why we're weak or poor at things is for lack of practice and forging. One of the things that's special about human beings is not that we are physically more capable. Most wild animals can hurt you, right? Like if you fight a, a, like a male deer one-on-one, -on -one, it's probably going to win. <laughs> like, like our physical capacity is not the amazing thing about us, right? But the, but the deer can't code, no matter how much you take it to the library. It's never going to write like CMD or whatever. Do you understand? And like we got to realize that. And then also, it's not just that. We have no idea what we're capable of in terms of strength. So David, David Goggins is kind of famous now for, um, for publicizing the Navy SEAL 40% rule, which is basically this. If you're doing some physical feat, and you get to the point where your mind says, I cannot go one more step. I am 100% out of gas. This body is not going any further. He says, you've used up about 40% of your capacity. Right? So he, um, he's over 200 pounds, which for a long-distance runner is insane. Most of, like, the long-distance runners try to get down to, like, 135, right? So he, he, ra he ran the Badwater 135, which is a 135-mile race. Most people do it in teams of about 12. He did it by himself with a water bottle, a protein bar, and a lawn chair. Broke every minor bone in his foot. 
And he did it with a heart condition that, has a, that leaves a small hole in his heart. This is before he had the surgery to get it fixed. How long was your last run? Mine was less than 137 miles. But I didn't break any bones in my feet. <clears throat> he has the world record for, for pull-ups. Almost every one of us has no idea what we're actually physically capable of. We've never been tested. We've never been in a concentration camp. We've never been put on a death march. We've never, like, we've never been in a situation that tests as far as we can go. We have no idea, and because we have all kinds of comforts around us, we'd just frankly rather be comfortable. And so in order to be forged in a context like this, you have to start the fire that burns you, like on purpose. You have to train yourself, right? We go and lift stuff. I mean, can you imagine, imagine how, how stupefied most people in the history of the world would, would be if they knew we had rooms in our society where people go and lift things and put them back in exactly the same spots that they were before energy was exerted? I mean, can you imagine? What they, they would be like, what? I just worked myself to death for 18 hours to try to make sure we have food this fall, and people in your culture go and lift things and then put them back? Right? That's a good one, right, Ashley? <laughs> and so, well, here, the thing is, is that in a diverted, worldly, comfortable culture that's addicted to explaining our weaknesses and sins by diversion towards um, determinism, you're like, oh, there's nothing I can do. It's the stars. It's the brain. It's the whatevers. We have no idea what we're capable of, right? The most boring part of almost every movie is the training montage, right? But all kinds of movies have them, like poor kids practicing math so they can win the math competition, people practicing for a heist in a thief movie, every military movie, every boxing movie, Mulan for exactly three minutes and 22 seconds. I don't know all the words of the song. <clears throat> Rocky Four actually has a six plus, it's like six minutes and 40 seconds training montage. It's, it's kind of long. Right? But the, the idea is, is like, that's all there is to a boxing movie. Right? Man gets angry at other man publicly. Man trains a really long time. Man punches other man while other man tries to punch him until one falls down for an extended period. Right? That's the whole film. So you gotta stretch it out. <laughs> but the point is, is that we kind of know, right? That the Mulan that tries on the dress and is really clumsy at the beginning of the movie cannot defeat the leader of the Huns without some intermittent training, right? So our hero has to be transformed at some point. Like, something's got to give. Like, she's got to become that thing, right? But we don't want to watch it. Can you imagine if every movie was proportionate to the time spent towards other things, right? That would be really boring, right? So like— Batman, like you watch Batman, like do push-ups for like an hour, like in like curl, and he's like working with his stuff. He's got a little screwdriver. You like watch forty-five minutes. He's got a little screwdriver. He's like working on his helmet. He's like, I'm, I'm changing the thing on my helmet, right? And then like, so the that he fights Joker for literally one point four seconds. Like he's like, he's like, pow, and they put pow on the screen, and it's over. And you're like, I don't like this movie. But the, you see, the point of it is, we know deep down that without the transformational experience, Batman can't be Batman. Mulan can't be Mulan. Rocky can't be Draco. Like, none of that can happen. And yet, we're bored by it. The training's boring. 
And so in our lives, we want our lives to be like the movie. We want to do 30 seconds of training, and we want to be able to be an international spy in a knife fight. And that's actually not how the world works. That's not how human beings work. That's not how character is forged. That's not how spiritual substance comes about. That's basically not how anything worthwhile in any situation in any human life ever happens. And you and I cannot continue to believe that and be forged in spiritual substance. We have to leave it behind. Now, I'm going to say something that is, would be heresy if it wasn't in the Bible, and I'm going to try to nuance it in just a second, but I want you to understand the freight of it, and that is this, that God has empowered us to forge ourselves into spiritual substance. God has empowered us to forge ourselves into spiritual substance. Have you ever heard somebody say this? You know what I'm going to do in this situation? I'm just going to let go and let God. I just need to let go and let God, man. Right? Now, there's something profoundly right about that statement, because what that usually means is this. What it usually means is I'm all bound up in worldliness. And I love that master. And I'm afraid that that's going to get torn away from me. And I need to let all the stuff that's making me anxious and angry and frustrated go. And I need to just let God do what he wants to do. When that statement is used to say, I need to let go of worldliness and everything that's troubling me because I love mammon, I need to let it go, and I need to turn to God, I need to like see what God is going to do, that is one of the most theologically practical, truthful, meaningful, deep, perfect gospel statements ever in the history of human language. Right? But what it means, man, I don't have to do anything. God's just going to do everything for me. It's stupid! It's totally unbiblical. It's completely wrong. It's anti-human. It's completely theologically erroneous on every level. God has empowered us to forge ourselves in spiritual substance. You may be like, Nick, where's that in the Bible? Because it's—the Bible says that God does everything for us. Okay, so in Philippians 3.12, Paul talks about how he's looking for a righteousness that's in Christ, in Christ alone. You know, it counts nothing as worthwhile other, other than being in Christ and becoming like him in his death— and some, so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead, right? And he says, everybody seeking maturity should think that way about faith. And then he says this, not that I've already obtained this or already been made perfect. That word perfect can mean mature or fully complete. But here's what I do. I press on to take hold of which, that for which Jesus took hold of me. Right? Why did Jesus take hold of him? He took hold of him to save him, Right? to give him a spirit, to be present in his life, and then to make him godly. To take the, the, the justification he declared on him, that he stood righteous before God, but, and to make him the kind of man that that standing can rest upon. In Christ. So it's kind of as though there's something out there to grab a hold of, and Paul is lunging forward to grab it, straining with all his power, and Jesus kind of has him horse-collared and is throwing him forward. Jesus has got a hold of him for that thing, and he's throwing him forward to it, but Paul is himself striving for it with everything that's in him. Right? I press on. And, and remember, he's, he's in prison when he writes Philippians. He's rotting in a Roman prison. And he says, everything I do, I'm pressing on. Why? So I can get a hold of that thing that Jesus got hold of me for. Do you see? God does all 
we do all. He changes us. We say everything that's done has been done through God. It's power. And yet we strive fully ourselves to take hold of the thing God took hold of us for, which is spiritual substance, which is godliness. Do you understand? He says, the Bible says it this way in Hebrews. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us, that's us the Christians, throw off everything that hinders us in the sin that so easily entangles us, right? Escaping diversion. And run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Embracing discipline. Who's running the race? Like, you're not riding in the golf cart next to Jesus while Jesus runs your race, going like, Jesus, I've got some really nice Gatorade in here. I've got some of the blue stuff. It's got nice and nice ice in it. Would you like it? No, what the picture is, is that Jesus is running out in front of you, and he's running at a pace so that he doesn't blow you away, so that he's right there, right in front of you, and your foot is falling where his foot just picked up, so you can see him. You see what he's doing. You, he's, he's your example. He's, he's pressing you on by leading out in front of you. He's given you the power, but you are running the race. You have to run the race. And he says, listen, you need to think about this because you need to consider him who suffered and endured his race so that you won't lose heart, so that you won't give up. You need to think about what he was like as a runner. You need to think about how he authored third, our faith, how he ran before us, how he faced all kinds of persecution, how he was derided and attacked and scourged, so that you will run too. Because only when you see his endurance and you see his joy and you see his passion and you watch him run in front of you, will you be able to endure? Will you be able to endure the process of being forged? Because right after this, he talks about taking all the discipline, all the pains of our life, and seeing them as training. That's the—without that attitude change, you can't—you can't do it. You're not going to go anywhere. You're not going to see it. You're not—you're just going to be angry at God, right? The reason why I've used the words the martial disciplines in the chapter in the book in in this morning is because um, there's a number of attitudes about spiritual discipline— that in the Bible are connected with extreme sports like running marathons or military soldiers. Now, if you go, if we went back to the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, and maybe even the 1970s, there were generations, especially of men, that had been to war and had fought and won wars. You had World War II veterans, you had Korean War veterans, and then later on you had Vietnam veterans, right? And a lot of these men, like, went and fought wars, and they, like, understood the martial disciplines. They, like, had been in armies, and they understood what makes them work and how you win fights that are desperate and deadly, right? And then my generation was raised on stories about how armies only do terrible things, and they only oppress people, and isn't it terrible that anybody ever gets in fights? It was my generation where we got rid of the fist fight between boys, Right? So when I was a little boy, boys would get in fistfights with each other and not actually try to kill each other. Like, they'd get in a fistfight and somebody would win. Nobody really lost any teeth or was injured for the rest of their lives. Right? And they went on with their life. And it was one of the reasons why men were really good at burying the hatchet. Because, like, you sorted it out and then it was over. The cost of a bloody nose, right? Now, like, if we were to, like, take us all to, like, a karate center, how many of us can actually throw a punch properly? Two percent? Somewhere between two and six percent, probably. Somewhere, somewhere, right? We have no idea how to do any of this stuff. 
right? And, and what's happened is there's a certain kind of weakness of mind related to the tough things in life, the bloody things in life, the difficult things in life, which include very practical things like bearing children and dealing with injuries and changing diapers without gagging. Like, I can't tell you how many modern men cannot change a child's poopy diaper after, the, like, the squishy stage, like, the real poop stage, when they're, like, seven, eight months and beyond, right? And, like, not moan about it or, like, say they can't do it. It's ridiculous, right? So there are certain kinds of mentalities that are hardened mentalities of fighting and fighting through that are fundamental to human existence and fundamental to human forging. And if you don't have those mentalities, if you don't have that spiritual discipline, you will never succeed in doing spiritual disciplines. If you don't think like a soldier or a marathoner about reading your Bible, you won't read your Bible. Right? Because you'll think about it legalistically, and then you won't do it, and then you'll feel guilty about not doing it. Which is the most idiotic way to think about it. No offense, because we've all felt that way, right? But the th and the thing is, is, we think like the guilt is somehow helpful. It's not. The guilt is just frosting on the fact that guilt just diverts you from the question, right? Like sometimes you'd be like, well, yeah, I didn't read my Bible, and then like I felt guilty about it, and I was like, you know, like I feel guilty, and like Satan wants me to feel bad. No, that's not the point. Satan wants you to think about the guilt instead of what's it going to take to read your Bible. That's what he wants. That's what he wants to divert you from. It's not a question of making you feel bad. Making you feel bad is a diversion from the question of training. You see, the guilt keeps you thinking about that rather than, well, how am I going to have to structure my day? What am I going to—what's it going to take for me to put the time aside to read the scriptures so that I can benefit from them as I train in reading them? The, listen, there's nowhere in the Bible actually tells you you have to read the Bible. I don't know if you know that. It says that people like me should engage in the public reading of scripture so that you'll hear it and so that everybody interacts with scripture. There isn't actually a place in the Bible that tells you to read it because nobody could afford books in biblical times. But should you read the Bible every day? If you can, absolutely. Right? Why? Because God demands it of you? Because you're a bad Christian? No! Because it's training that's available to you. It's right there. It's like, it's like five bucks you could steal with our Bibles. We say that like most weeks. Just take it with you. It's free. Right? And it's the best spiritual training you could possibly come up with. All you gotta do is take the book, open it up, and read the English sentences thoughtfully regularly and try to apply them to your heart and your life will be incredibly changed in a year. It'll be pretty changed in a couple of weeks probably. Right? And it's just, it's just diversion to feel bad about it. Because you're thinking moralistically, you're thinking legalistically, you're thinking about whether or not I'm approved of rather than in terms of training. How is a person forged spiritually to become what we must be? Does that make sense? Okay, let's talk about the four things. The first is vigilance. Okay, soldiers know about vigilance. They know if they stop looking at their post for one minute, that could be the minute that the enemy comes in that one place and kills everyone. Everything is at stake in watching at every moment. Right? When Paul leaves the Ephesian elders, he, he says this. I'm not going to read it all right now, but there's— just piles of affirmations about how careful we need to be. He's like, I, when I was with you, I told you the whole truth so that I wouldn't be guilty of anyone's blood. 
I worked so hard. And then he says, listen, you need to keep watch. You need to be shepherds over the sheep. Shepherding is essentially a occupation of vigilance. It's not much more than that. Almost all shepherding is, is leading sheep in safety to food and back. Right? Be shepherds. He says, wolves are going to arise. Wolves, listen, I know you may have seen Disney movies in which wolves are nice, okay? That's not real, okay? Wolves love killing stuff. Even stuff they're not going to eat. They'll just kill everything. Do you understand? And what he's saying is people are going to rise up, and that's how we're going to treat—they're going to treat the flock of God. They're going to just try to kill everything. And then in this last sentence, he says, I ne- remember, for three years, I never stopped warning each one of you day and night with tears for three years. Now, can you imagine if I did that to you? Just think about that for a second. Imagine if, like, we got Mike Beresford— Every day, for three years, day and night. So he showed up at Tear House at least twice, right? Personally for you, to warn you, and every time, both days, for three years, every time, he says, listen, and there's tears streaming down his face. You need to be vigilant. You need to watch out. You need to stay focused. You need to know where your weaknesses are. You need to know yourself. You need to know where your blind spots are. You need to be careful. The Bible says that the devil, like a roaring lion, prowls about looking for someone to devour. You need to be ready. And there's tears. He's just, he's just streaming down his face because he loves you so much. And he does that for three years. A thousand times he comes to your house twice a day to warn just you with tears, to be vigilant. That's what that verse is saying. That's what it's saying to you. It is that important. A couple things you need to know about vigilance. One is that defenses don't defend themselves, right? You may have set up little defenses in your life. Well, I got married partly so I wouldn't be tempted, and I, you know, like I— I tell my, my roommate not to buy big tubs of ice cream so that I— Look, you, you can have—I have this software on my computer to keep me from looking at— You can have those defenses in place. But if you as the soldier aren't working the defenses, they're useless. Okay? I don't know if you know this. You, well, there's no reason you would know this. The first Gibson in recorded history— Okay, mine, the last name is Gibson. The first Gibson in recorded history is in recorded history because he signed over a castle because he lost it. That's pretty embarrassing. You've got a castle, and people are attacking you in a castle, right? right? And the name means like victory, like victorious youth, right? It's kind of embarrassing if that's your name, and your first time your name is in recorded history is like you're handing over a British castle near York, right? And it's because, listen, castles don't defend themselves. Nothing you think protects you works itself. You, as the soldier, have to use it to your advantage in vigilance. Now, here's what you also need to know. If there is anything that Jesus says that you won't believe, okay? Like you, you're, like you believe in Jesus to save your soul, but this other stuff he talks about just isn't that big a deal, right? If there is anything that Jesus says that you refuse to believe— you are also refusing to believe the truth about reality on which he claims that thing. Which means 
you have that blind spot about the truth and about reality. It's like trying to defend an office building and you put up video cameras and you put two on the corner that face out, right? And you're like, man, I'm covering both sides of the building. Yeah, but it turns out people can climb right up the corner of the building and even use your cameras to climb up on and you will not see them because those two cameras have a blind spot. And it's small, but it doesn't have to be very big. Right? It can still be a tragic blind spot. It can be the kind of blind spot where temptation or worldliness or the flesh just— it just slips right through there and puts all kinds of stupidity in our minds and hearts and turns us back towards worldliness, turns us back towards mammon, turns us back towards idolatry. You don't need a very big seam. And anywhere where you tell Jesus, I don't believe you, you are creating a blind spot— And what's the point of having a castle if you leave the scullery door open? Your defenses are worthless. What's going to happen is the army comes in, and then the castle becomes a problem because you can't get out. And lastly, um, you need to know what the usual suspects are if you're going to be vigilant. Like, you literally—you can't literally watch everything at every moment, right? But the good news is, is all your enemies are pretty predictable. Like, the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages came up with the seven deadly sins because basically every single human struggles with those seven things constantly. We're all constantly struggling with gluttony and lust and greed and pride and envy. Right? And if you know those and you have them in your head, this is what envy looks like, this is what envy is, this is what it feels like, this is when it often comes up, you are specifically ready for all your nemesises. I don't know if that's the right plural of that word. Nemesi. Do you understand? And you see, when you understand those things and you understand the importance of vigilance, you will not only behave towards your own soul differently, but you will behave towards fellow Christians very differently. Because you will will start to take much greater responsibility for their souls. And you see, here's the thing. You won't do it judgmentally or legalistically because that's not what's in your mind. You see, if in your mind is vigilance, you're just trying to keep them from getting attacked, from getting taken over. It's it's just for their benefit. You're not being like, well, I'm better than you because you can't blah, blah, blah. You should discipline your children. That's not what it's about. It's about helping them be vigilant, right? I gotta keep moving, sorry. This quote the staff said was helpful. The outpost where you're not vigilant is the point where you will be conquered. Remember in Luke 4, it said that after Satan had tempted Jesus over and over and over again, it said, and Jesus rebuffed all the temptations, it said, then he left him until an opportune moment. But you need to remember, because when bad things happen in your life, those are big moments of temptation where you'll be tempted to make something bad really bad. Okay, the second thing is spiritual brutality. We come to Jesus when we come to Jesus to save our lives. And that's right, because Jesus died to save us and to save our lives spiritually, eternally, entirely, okay? And then we find out sometimes, sometimes it's after we come to Jesus, we find out that Jesus told us we need to be ready to die for him. Right? Jesus says, unless you take up your cross and follow me daily, meaning up to crucifixion and death, you, you can't be mine. You can't be my disciple. You have to follow me in these things. And we go, oh, I guess I have to be ready to die for Jesus, which is, which is pretty difficult. To, it's easy to be, like, cheeky about it. Be like, oh, yeah, of course. Let's go get a coffee, you know? But it's, it's totally different to really feel that way, right? But then it gets, like, a whole other step worse because there's a point where Jesus says, yeah, it's, a, it's another step. You actually have to be ready to kill for me. Okay? Now that probably made some of your blood curdle a little bit, which is good. 
to you. There's certain things Jesus says in order to get your attention because you're ter- it terrifies you, right? Because here's what he says. There is this thing inside you that the Bible calls the flesh. That is, it's a continued existence of indwelling sin, right? It's the part of you that wants things Jesus doesn't want and the Spirit doesn't want, right? And what Jesus basically says, he personifies it. He says, you can think about that like another person, right? Because it's kind of like a voice inside you, right? It's like, I want this, I want that, right? It's like, you could say it's kind of like a person. It's not literally a person, but it kind of acts like one in certain ways, right? And he's like, that person, the flesh, needs to die, Okay? You need to brutally and horrifically and constantly kill it. And you don't just need to, like, shoot it with a sniper rifle from a long distance away or poison it when it's not looking. You need to beat it to death in the skull with a stone. And then, like in a horror movie, you need to assume as a zombie it's going to keep coming back to life and you're going to have to kill it again, like, every single day. Like, your life killing the flesh is like a horror movie that's going to have, like, 12 movies. Okay? It's going to be like— Rick Zinda killing the flesh too, right? Now, it could be more boring. The movies could be more boring because once you start killing that thing and you stay on top of killing that thing, you can keep it mostly dead, right? Monty Python, you get that one? Okay. So, actually, no, that was Princess Bride, sorry. Galatians is the most brutal of the ones. We, see, we think of crucified as a religious word. Crucified isn't a religious word. It's nailing a living person with a hammer and nails to a couple of pieces of wood to kill them in the most horrific, humiliating, and painful way possible. And it's saying that anybody who belongs to Jesus has, past tense, has crucified the flesh or the sinful nature. You understand? That's really nasty. And it's meant to alert you to the kind of internal, emotional, and spiritual brutality and ferocity you need to find inside of you that God has given you the capacity for as a human being and empowered by his spirit, but it requires faith. You have to believe it's right now. Some of you are like, wait, Nick, this makes me very uncomfortable because I, I know about things like historic religious violence and you're probably going to—we're going we're gonna to start, you know, killing Democrats or something. You know, this is going to go badly. Okay. Jesus says we have to love our enemies, the people who hate us. Right? So we'll use Kim, Kim Jong-un as an example, okay? So Kim Jong-un is a pretty bad dude. Okay, he's a pretty bad dude. He's, he's like, they're, you know, he's saber-rattling, like, nuclear war. He's, his dad has killed hundreds of thousands of people. He's doing all the same practices of doing that. Um, he's a horrific, terrible human being, as far as we know, right? Now, the reason why he is not what the Bible is talking about in those passages is because, though he's a bad person— He's a human person, and the Bible says that every human person bears the image of God. Okay? And because he bears the image of God, no matter how bad a person he is, he he bears and is contains and is something that is fundamentally always redeemable until God says it's not redeemable anymore. Right? Which happens in eternal judgment, not now. Right? So no human person— can be certainly unredeemable in our eyes at any moment. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't parameters of self-defense by which we can defend our lives by killing others in certain—that's a whole different theological discussion about pacifism that I can't get into right now. But the point is this. Those passages have nothing to do with that. The reason why those passages can talk about the brutality of absolute destruction is because the flesh is a personified thing that isn't a person. It doesn't bear the image. It is sheer disease. It's not you. 
right? That's why you have to realize that all the sinful desires inside of you are not part of you, right? That's why if you're like, well, you know, it's really part of me, this like raging at people. It's just really who I am. No, it isn't who you are. You are a corrupted version of Jesus, right? Perfect humanity. And perfect humanity does not rage in its self-interest because it wants to be angry at people. Jesus is mad when, th- when, when a true human should be mad, and he's not when one shouldn't be, and he's incredibly merciful and caring towards people who are brutalized, right? And so that's not the real you. That is the present behavior that you do because you pay attention to the disease of sin that is inside you, the thing that needs to die. And you need, with the gra- by the grace of God, to beat it to death viciously daily. And without—listen, and you might be like, Nick, why are you talking about it like this? It's—listen, you cannot have a—you you can't have a let's go shopping attitude about killing sin, guys. You, it just—it's useless. It's just—it's just nothing ever happens. You're like—you like slap sin with your glove. You're like, oh, don't do that. You know, like, quit, quit tempting me to such things. Oh, oh. And for God's sakes, you guys, it's like 95% of American Christians is dancing around with a little leather glove, swatting at sin, you know? And it's just like, that's never going to do it. Jesus never talked like that. The Bible never talks like that. It says that this is a discipline of martiality, of soldierliness. It's the kind of things people who run marathons do. Do you understand? Okay. Two really quick keys about this. About... The one is, is that you need to realize that sin is brutal. It seeks to brutalize you, and when it wields you because you obey it, it is brutal towards everyone else, okay? When you don't do what it takes to kill sin, and you get snippy with your wife, you're doing something sinfully brutal towards her because you won't brutalize sin in you. And so it's, if you mess around with sin and you let it go and you swat it with your little glove and say, quit, quit doing that, sin will control you and you will brutalize other people. The only route to loving tenderness, the only route to the kindness you want. For those of you who are like, Nick, I don't like talking about this way. Listen, if you want kindness and love and compassion and hopefulness and encouragement and warmth to flow out of you truthfully, the cost of that is brutality within. Either we will be brutal against the flesh within, or sin will make us brutal to the people outside of us. The second is one of the best examples of the war between godliness and worldliness is found in Song of Songs in chapter 2, where this couple goes out, and they're newly married, and apparently one of their families owns this vineyard, and they go out for like really a romantic interlude. And they, you know, like they're in the country house and it's kind of springtime and the vineyard is just starting to bloom and it's beautiful and this, the woman is singing about this beauty and she's like, she's like, you know, things are blooming and it's, and it's green again and it's beautiful and we're together and our love is like this. And then there's this, almost feels like a throwaway line. She goes, go and catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyard. Because you can imagine them sitting on the back porch of this like little house and it looks oh, it's like where the steward of the vineyard lives And it looks out over this vineyard this hillside with all these great plants on it And there's a little there's a couple little dens up there where the foxes have had new kits and these little These little red babies are running around and they're slapping each other and they're playing on the hillside. And they're so cute, right? But in order for them to become the predators they're born to be they've got to cut their teeth on something 
they've got a teeth just like your babies, right? And they're looking for something to chew on that's kind of tender. And what's the only thing tender on that hillside that is easy to chew on? And it's the grape plants that all got pruned back last fall, and now they're growing this new growth that's going to produce grapes, that's going to produce wine. And so all these little foxes are going to cut their teeth on all these grapevines and destroy everything. And they're a bother to gather up. And who wants to kill a cute little fox? Oh, cute little foxy. Real cute, cute fox. Nobody wants to do that, right? But listen, spiritually speaking, in terms of your life forever, you can either have foxes or you can have wine, but you can't have both. You can't have both. You might want both. You might wish you could have both. You might want to change the rules so you can't have both. But you can't. You're not that kind of creature. You can't change reality. You are stuck with this basic binary choice about the nature of your life. You can either have foxes or you can have wine, but you can't have both. Now, the third is training. And we'll do these two really quick. Training mentality is basically the idea that everything in your life is training, that you need training, that in order to be good at anything, in order for anything to be formed in you, you need these repetitive, careful, deliberate kinds of things that will forge what you want to be in you. So if you want to be a piano player, you got to practice piano. You got to get lessons. You got to save your money so you can get the lessons, right? You got to do the stuff, right? If you want to be an athlete, you got to run. You got to do the drills. You got to to focus on the fundamentals while you're doing the drills. You can't screw around. You got to, you got to focus, right? And people who have this developmental personality, who, who understand that you get better in for, because of certain reasons, and you have to do those things, look at spiritual disciplines or things that form our character very differently, right? Very differently than people who look at them at, in terms of approval. So you get a, a fifth grade girl, and you throw her a volleyball for her to bump it, right? And she goes, and it's terrible, right? And she's not even in the right stance. It looks awful. And what she wants you to do at that moment is tell her how fantastic she just bumped the ball. Because every adult she's ever met has been like, you're just so fantastic. You're like a little snowflake. You're just special, 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 right? Instead of saying, okay, everything about that was terrible. Okay, so you need to put your feet like this. You need to do that, right? Otherwise, three years from now, you're going to do exactly the same thing, right? Because, and listen, if you won't do that, you don't care about her. You don't care about her. Now, you could be nicer than me about it. Right? But that's secondary to what we're doing. And what you, we have to have as Christians is a training mentality. You're not, you, didn't, you're not, you didn't come to this sermon. You shouldn't have come to this sermon because you hoped it would be funny, it would be entertaining, you'd feel like a good person, you'd enjoy the relationships. You, you should have come to this sermon to get a spiritual meal, to be both comforted and encouraged, to hear the Word of God, something in it respoken, so that you could take it with you and you could apply it in a disciplined way to your life as much as you can within the spiritual relationships of your own community as, as much as possible. Because we're all training. You see? Now, training only works if you have a single option mentality. Listen, you're never going to do the hard thing if you think you have another option. Do you understand? Nobody fights through if they think they can retreat. Do you understand? If you think retreat is okay, you'll retreat. When you face the carnage of the fight itself, right? If you think running works, you're going to run. The only way you will push through—that's why we have wedding ceremonies, people, right? Why do we have wedding ceremonies, right? The food isn't even that good, right? The reason we have wedding ceremonies is not supposed to be that we like to dress up. It's, it's this. 
I don't care if it doesn't work. You stay together and you figure it out and we'll help you. It's the whole point. It's the whole point of them standing here and saying, no matter what, it doesn't matter if you get sick or if you're well. It doesn't matter if we're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if we have to move or we can stay close to our families. None of that matters. From this moment forward, we will figure it out. We will never leave each other. And we all go, yes, that's right. That's what it takes. Do you understand? And that's why we baptize people too. Right? We baptize people because those people say, I belong to Jesus now. That's right. You do. And that's your only option to follow Jesus through whatever it is. Right? We have to have a training mentality and we have to know that everything is training. So for example, you might be like, well, Nick, I do these spiritual disciplines. I read my Bible and I go to church and sometimes I sing even during the music and sometimes I even show up for the first song, you know? And, and these are the things that I do and I, and I you know, these, this is my training. And what Hebrew says, and you should read this later because I can't spend a lot of time. If you go back to last November, I preached through some of the stuff and you can go into more depth. But what, what Hebrews 12 says is, is that everything is training, especially everything that's hard. Everything in your life that happens that's hard. He doesn't say, God did it so that he could train you. What it says is this. It's a command. It's not a statement about reality. It's just a command. It says you. Hey, you, Christian. You. Okay, listen. Receive everything as training. Right? Endure hardship as discipline. That's what it means. The word discipline there essentially means training. The, because I can't get into why that's part of the first seven chapters of Proverbs and what's going on with all that right now. It's like a 20-minute discussion. But what he's saying is this. He's saying when, when hard things come, you endure them. That's how you train with something hard. What do you do when, like, you get fired? How, do you, how is that training? It's training because you, you, you are a Christian through it. <laughs> and that's hard. And by doing the hard work of being a Christian through that hard thing, it becomes training, right? And if when you get fired, you're just like, do whatever you want and just like go on a binge drinking and like take it out on everybody around you and just get angry that somebody didn't want you hard enough and like, you know, why won't these other people hire me? This is just terrible. Instead of saying, I've got some free time. What should I do with it? And how do I support my wife or husband? Right? It just by hanging in there and figuring out how to keep in step with the Spirit through the hard thing is training. Because of that, if you just have the right attitude every minute in your life, you're always training every minute, all the time, which is great. Because every minute you're training, you're being forged. And every minute you're being forged, spiritual substance is being formed in you. And the last one we'll talk about next week, which is cooperation. How being part of the body of Christ makes us cooperative with each other. Okay, so um, I got like six staff people who will yell at me if I don't give you a concrete example before you leave for application. Right? People are like, well, what about the application? Like, what's the application? Right? Like, I have to do all the work for you, right? Okay, so let me just give you two really quick examples. So let's say you're wrong about something, right? Let's say you're having a conversation with somebody. You insisted really strongly on it. You're like, no, I'm right about this. You're wrong. I'm right. And like, you really thought about it. And then you find out you're wrong, right? Your little factoid you got from your news program, and it's not even true, Okay. Or like, you know, the Bible verse wasn't even right, or you were just being an idiot and you didn't know it at the time. And then you realize it, right? Now, 
Vigilance is essentially us recognizing that we always do this. We are constantly self-justifying and assuming we're right and not giving the other person the benefit of the doubt and thinking about how we're experiencing a moment and not how they're experiencing a moment. And that's just constant all the time, right? And if you're vigilant, sometimes it helps you not double down in the moment of the argument, but sometimes it also helps you realize that you're wrong. And one of the ways that that happens sometimes is you'll go ask somebody else who you know will tell you the truth and not just affirm you. Right? And that person will be like, yeah, sounds like you were a jerk. Right? And then this is what happens. This is, this is where ferocity becomes really key. Okay? This is so important. Because here's what's going to happen. What happens inside of you is this. The minute you realize you're wrong, here's what's going to happen. The flesh, who's not totally dead, right? He's, he's coming back for the 12th movie, right? The, this, the flesh comes up and was like, but you weren't that wrong. And what's the big deal? And like, if you apologize over something so trivial, the other person is just going to be embarrassed by it. They're not going to be gratified by it. And even if they are gratified by it, you're just going to feed their vanity, and they're just going to become proud, and they might even attack you. They'll probably gossip to you about the people, other people at the office, and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> the flesh, oh, right? And that's when you take your spiritual battle axe, and you cleave off its ever-loving head, right? And you're like, no. And then what you do is you go to the person you were wrong with, and you say this, I was wrong. I wasn't just wrong, but I kind of knew I was wrong and didn't even want to listen to my own voice telling me why I was wrong. And I insisted on it because I'm kind of a jerk and because I'm a know-it-all half the time. And if I would have just listened to you, I would have realized that this wasn't even about that and that you are really getting at this and that I should, have, I should have known that. And you apologize in the most complete, specific, and humiliating way possible until they are embarrassed. If you apologize to somebody, they should feel embarrassed about how thorough your repentance is because almost nobody repents. Right? They'll be like, well, I'm sorry you feel that way and that maybe I said something that hurt you and blah, 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 blah. I'm right, I'm right, I'm right, even though I'm pretending to apologize. That's what most people hear. If you really apologize to somebody, it is a really strange moment for them. But that Making the words of repentance and trust in God come out of your mouth is one of the most ferocious things anybody ever does. Because that is the fulcrum between truth and falsehood. Between admitting what's true and hiding in the darkness. John 3 says this. Jesus says, listen, light has come into the world, but men and women love darkness. They love it because they're afraid if they come into the light, their deeds are going to be exposed they don't want that. And so they want to hide. And so they don't want to repent, and they don't want to believe, and they don't want to say, I was wrong. And because of that, because they won't allow God to stir up in them the ferocity of repentance, they just do something else. They defend themselves, they justify themselves, they rationalize, they do all kinds of things to just keep themselves from saying it. Because what every devil knows is that if he can just keep it out of your will, if he can just keep you from doing something about the conviction, it won't matter in the long run. Let yourself wallow in it. Let yourself feel bad long enough so that you feel like you've self-atoned and don't even need to apologize. Let all of that happen. Let anything happen but the spiritual ferocity of repentance. You have to be ferocious against indwelling sin so that you can be tender and loving to the people around you, right? And that repenting is training, especially if you do it every time. And then that person, instead of being pushed away from you, will be drawn towards you 
because you've put yourself under them and they know that you care about the truth and not just power and you know that you're willing, they know you're willing to love them and they become cooperative with you in vigilance against this in the future. Same thing with lying. Is it temptation? Like you're like, well, I just kind of exaggerate. And you don't exaggerate. Be vigilant. Call your enemy what it is. You are a liar, right? When I turned about 37 or so, my mind stopped being the steel trap it used to be where I could remember every single number. And because I couldn't remember every single number that I had read for my whole life anymore, I had to like, I found myself kind of making them up, but I didn't just make them neutrally. I always made them up 10 or 15% in the favor of the argument that I was making, which is what most of you do and won't admit. But I found myself doing it, right? And I was like, my gosh, I'm just lying. I'm just exaggerating. And I, and it just, it was happening. And, it, and I'm not really usually given to that. And it went on for a couple of months. And I was like, okay, that's it. So I went back to the first one I knew I told to Scott Kyle driving back from basketball. And I said, Scott, I said this when I was making this argument. And I still believe the argument that I made, but I made up that number. And it turns out it's this number. And I exaggerated because I was trying to persuade you. And I wanted you to know that I knew the exact number because I wanted you to think of me as a more analytic person than I really was. And I'm losing that ability, and it's terrifying me because it's one of my biggest strengths. Will you forgive me? And he was like, yeah. <laughs> and it took about one week. I apologized about four times, and that's all it took. And that temptation just was gone until an opportune time for it to come back. But once my flesh knew, and once my tempters knew, and once the structure of worldliness around me knew that I was going to tell the truth ruthlessly, that temptation wasn't getting them anywhere. All it was was training for my godliness. And the minute I started using those temptations to train godliness in me, and to fortify the life of Christ in me, to follow Jesus running after him on those little steps, all of a sudden, boy, that was gone. Do you understand? And then every person that I apologize to begin to cooperate me, with me in my vigilance against those sins. You understand? Jesus said, we're going to take communion in just a second. Ben, why don't you guys come up here? We're going to take communion in just a second. And the reason why this is critical is because Jesus once said about sin, he said, listen, if your left eye causes you to sin or your right eye causes you to sin, just gouge it right out of your head. Because it's, it's actually better to go to heaven with one eye then it'd be thrown into hell with both of them, right? And he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, just cut it off. And because it's, it's better to go to heaven with one hand than to go to hell with both of them, right? Now that's, that's pretty terrifying, right? And, and some people are like, well, Nick, I mean, if you read that literarily, it, that's called hyperbole. Okay, great. It's hyperbole. That's right. So Jesus is using language to magnify something that we don't take seriously enough which is apparently how brutal we are with killing sin, right? But you're not going to cut off your hand, right? Like when I said that, you're like, I'm not cutting off my hand, right? Am I right? That's what I, that's what I say every time I hear that. I'm like, I'm not cutting my hand. You'll never do it. You'll never do it, right? You want two hands, you want two eyes, because we're worldly. We want the foxes. We wish we could have the wine too. And you, it'll never happen until we have just one master, but the reason we won't do it is because we have two masters. That's why. This is, not about try this is not about trying harder. It's about having one master. If you have one master, everything in you will be directed towards taking hold of that for which Christ took hold of you. If you have one master, you will run with perseverance the race marked out for you after Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. 
And if he's not your master, then you, you won't, right? And you're like, well, Nick, I can't even will that well. Like, my will's not even that clean. Great. Philippians 2 says that if you'll trust in Jesus, that you can work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you to will and act according to his good purpose. What you need to do is surrender yourself to Jesus. You need to let go and let God. You need to release your other master. Give yourself to the one true loving king and let it go. And listen, that, that moment of just letting it go, letting the world go again, just letting it all go totally cleanly in the conscious. You're like, it's, that's gone. That is what I mean by spiritual ferocity. It's so hard. It feels like you'd have to kill yourself, right? That feeling of like, you mean I, I might have to get rid of that hobby and I might not have to do what I want with my leisure. I might, blah, blah, blah. I, don't, I don't even know. Where, I might have to stay with my spouse. I might have to re-engage with that teenage kid I hate. I, like, I, I, can't, I can't do that. It's like killing me. Exactly. That's the flesh. It's got to die. That's the thing you have to kill. It's not you. Romans 8 says, those who live by the flesh will die, but those who by the Spirit put it to death will live. And so this is the moment to believe in Jesus right now with everything, nothing reserved, no other voice whispering about its space. One master, one untorn heart, one direction, one race marked out for us, one thing we're reaching out to grab, to take hold of because of what Christ has taken hold of us for. Let's pray. God, as we come to this moment, will you release us? Will you give us the courage to be as ferocious as we have to be, to repent and believe and to trust you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength, to experience the freedom that comes from you and to know that at this moment maybe all we can do is trust in you. Even if the flesh has control of so much of our life, let us at this moment help us to trust in you knowing that if we work out our salvation in you, you will strengthen us, you will lead us, you will cause us to both will and to act according to your good purpose with your strength. Help us at this moment to believe in Christ, his broken body, in his shed blood for us. One king, one savior. Amen.